Hello. The passage I'll be reading is Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. So please join with me. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Amen. Well, over the last year and a half, each one of us has become quite familiar with living with uncertainty. It's been a feature of our day-to-day -day lives, hasn't it? We look ahead to what tomorrow may hold and we shrug, we just don't know. The road ahead appears cloudy. We might ask the question, well, are the case numbers gonna go up or down tomorrow? We don't know. We might ask the question, well, are the restrictions gonna tighten or loosen and when? And we can guess, but we don't know. We might even quietly ask the question to ourselves, well, am I going to get through this okay? Am I going to get sick? And we don't know. There is uncertainty about our tomorrow, isn't there? And, and that is an unpleasant feeling to have lived with for this long. Now, some people in the midst of this uncertainty have tried to kind of lean into the uncertainty, try to embrace it and try and have a little bit of fun with the uncertainty about tomorrow. I don't know whether you're aware, but you can actually go online and place a bet predicting what the colour of Gladys Berejiklian's top will be at the press conference tomorrow. You can try and make friends with the uncertainty, but deep down, we all know what feeling uncertainty produces in us, don't we? Anxiety, worry about tomorrow, and whether we'll be okay and how this will all turn out. But I think the other thing that the uncertainty produces in us is a listlessness. It's very hard to feel like you've got purpose and drive 
when you are just taking one more blind step into an unknown future after another? What do you give yourself to? It's hard to have a purpose in these days, isn't it? And yet, I hope, if you're a Christian, that you don't feel as lost and as confused and as purposeless as many people do right now. Because the reality is, if you're a Christian, whilst you still don't know what the short-term future is going to hold, what tomorrow is going to be like, you do know something about the future. You know quite clearly what eternity is going to look like. Because God has told you in his word, hasn't he? In fact, that's one of the blessings of being a Christian, is that God reveals his will of what the future is going to be to you. That's Ephesians chapter 1 explains that, that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What is it? What's the future? To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That's the future. Jesus as Lord over all. And I want to say that knowing what our eternity looks like, that ought to comfort us today in, in all of the short-term uncertainty that we are living with at the moment. But more than that, it ought to give us a very clear sense of purpose. Because when we understand where God is taking all of history, that end point that he has ordained, well, then you can understand, actually, you can work backwards and figure out what God is working towards even today. And when you understand that, it suddenly makes your purpose very clear, regardless of what other things are going on in the world. And so what I want to do today is to have a look at one of the Bible's pictures of eternity and to try and show you some of the details of God's plan for eternity so that your heart will be gripped with a divine purpose. Revelation chapter 7 that we're looking at today comes right in the midst of a section in this book which is describing all of the, the suffering and the tribulation that God's people are going to go through in these last days before Jesus returns. And this glimpse of heaven here in chapter 7, what it is is like a reassurance to the readers of this book that all of this hardship that they're going through in these last days, that it won't last forever, that it'll be okay in the end. In fact, it'll be better than okay. It'll be glorious. So let's take a look at these words and see what they show us about God's plan for eternity. The scene starts here in chapter 7 with the Apostle John hearing about this massive crowd who he refers to there as the servants of God. And we read that this crowd is sealed. That is, that they're given kind of some sort of a mark to demonstrate that they are the ones who are chosen. They're there to be kept safe and protected in the midst of what they're going through. And in verse 4, we're told that there are 144,000 of these people from all the tribes of Israel. There are 12,000 from Judah, 12,000 from Reuben, and so on. Now, what's going on here with this, this list? What are we to make of this? Uh, if, um, the first thing I want to say is that this list of who is going to be there in heaven, it's not a literal list. Now, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, if you've ever had a conversation with them, they will tell you that it, this is a literal list and that this represents a special class of kind of specially anointed Christians, 144,000 of them, and it's only these people who will enter the kind of heavenly paradise and live forever in the presence of God. And everyone else who's a believer, just a regular kind of Christian, well, they're just going to live in like an earthly paradise. 
uh, it's a hot ticket to try and get into this 144,000 in the view of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And look, there's a lot wrong with that point of view. Uh, I don't simply have the time to unpack exactly everything that's uh, wrong and why that perspective is not true. Uh, but I do want to show you one important thing to notice here, that the 144,000 are referred to here as servants of God in verse 3. That's who they are, this 144,000. They're the servants of God. And I want to say that there's no reason to make whoever this is, the 144,000, any more restricted than that. If you are a servant of the living God, you are one of the 144,000 mentioned here. Because in the book of Revelation, every time that phrase is used, servants of God, it always refers to all of God's redeemed people. Now, the question then is, well, why 144,000? Why, why actually list a number at all? And we do have to remember that in the book of Revelation, there's often symbols which are kind of stylized to make a point. And so this number, 144,000, if you've got any kind of maths credibility at all, you'll quickly realize, well, that number is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And in the book of Revelation, the number 12 is a number that represents the completeness of God's people. Think of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles of Jesus. And 1,000 is just a number that sort of suggests a great multitude. And so 144,000, well, that's a way of saying kind of all of God's people, both under the old and the new covenant, they will all be there in the end. None of them will miss out. Heaven will be full. That's the point being made here. And then you read in verse 9 that when John looks, he's not just hearing anymore, he looks and he sees this great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And, and they're waving palm branches that symbolize victory. And they're wearing white robes. You know, they're displaying this glorious purity and freedom from sin in this scene. So just pause and try and imagine how these words would have sounded to a first century Christian. Comforting, yes, absolutely. But probably unbelievable. Because the Christian movement at this time, it was small, it was weak, it was unimpressive. Christians were on the margin of society. And here is God saying to them, you know, one day there'll be more of you than you can count. And they will be from places on the earth that you've never even heard of. And you will be thoroughly transformed. That's the future. Now, unbelievable, wouldn't it have sounded? Because the gospel had barely made it to the Mediterranean at the time that John was writing this. But God says that at the end of history, there'll be people who worship him coming from every corner of the globe. And make no mistake, that's why the people are there, to worship. Because what's the focus of this scene? It's not so much that multi-ethnic crowd, as amazing as that is. Rather, the focus is on the one that they are looking at, the Lamb, Jesus. He's at the center of this scene. All eyes on him and the crowd are singing and worshipping together, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And even more amazing, it's not just the crowd of people who are singing, but the angels and these heavenly creatures are joining in worship too, singing praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine that scene? The joy of that gathering. Can you imagine what that will sound like? The volume of it. And all of the variety of, of tones and accents and presumably languages too. Singing in unison. Singing in agreement that Jesus is worthy and beautiful and glorious. 
then how can you not get goosebumps when you think about participating in that future? The Olympics have given us, I think, an anemic version of this scene recently. Do you remember in the opening ceremony last weekend where some of the athletes from some of the countries entered into that empty stadium waving their flags? And at one point in the proceedings, this assortment of celebrities sang John Lennon's song, Imagine, as if it was, you know, some great, hopeful, unifying moment, as if that's the anthem that could unite the countries of the world. And I mean, what a farce that was. Imagine by John Lennon is a nihilistic song, which invites you to envision a world where there is no external ground for moral choices, a world where there's no overarching design or purpose, a world where people are simply living for today because, well, tomorrow's the end. And somehow that world is supposed to produce joy and unity and peace amongst all people. I mean, give me a break. No, the, the only song which can unite people from every nation, tribe and language is the song that's being sung in heaven, the worship of the lamb who was slain, whose blood purchased people for God. Now, to cut John Lennon some slack, he wanted the right thing, but he had no idea how to get there. Friends, God, however, is working towards that very goal even today. This is his plan, and he's at work now, calling countless people from all the nations of the earth to come to him through his son, Jesus. And I wonder if you realize that this heavenly scene is closer to reality now than ever before. Do you believe that? You might not think so if you only look around at our country and our city. If you look around in our neighbourhoods, you might come to the conclusion that God has taken his foot off the pedal when it comes to kind of gathering people to himself. But friends, Wollongong is not representative of the rest of the world. We need to remember that. And so let me remind you for a minute about what God is doing and what he has been doing over these last 2,000 years. Remember that at the point at which Jesus told his disciples to go and be witnesses to the ends of the earth, that there were at most probably a couple of hundred Christians. And they were scared. And they were clueless. Today, there are two and a half billion people who would say that Jesus is their king and that he demands their worship in some way, shape or form. Uh, let me make it even clearer for you. In China, in 1900, there were around, estimates are, around 100,000 Christians at that time. Today, there's 100 million. In Africa in 1900, there were approximately 10 million Christians across the whole continent. Today, 600 million. In Iran, at the time of the 1979 revolution, estimates say that there were fewer than 500 believers in that country from a Muslim background. Do you know how many there are today, friends? A million. God is at work, friends. He is making this plan a reality today. He is building his heavenly assembly. He's calling people from every nation, tribe and language to put their trust in the one who died for them and to gather in worship around the Lamb. That's where eternity is headed. That's where you're headed if you're a Christian. And I really hope that that comforts you in these uncertain days we find ourselves in. 
but more than that, friends, I hope it's clear to you that because of this eternal reality, that you and I have a very clear purpose in our lives now. I hope that's clear. Because when you look at this glorious picture, well, the obvious question should be, well, how are we going to get there? How are we going to get from here, where we are now, to that glorious final day? How will it be that the nations will hear about and, and turn and trust Jesus as their saviour? How's that going to happen? You know the answer, though, don't you? It's us. We are the answer. You know, in God's infinite wisdom, he has decided that the means by which people are going to be gathered into that great heavenly body is through us, us Christians, with the treasure of the gospel in these jars of clay. Remember what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 10, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, we have been commissioned by God. Every disciple of Jesus has been commissioned to make disciples. And that only happens as we speak the gospel to others. In light of eternity, in light of where history is going, that's our purpose. That's our mission today. You know, we don't have the option, actually, of saying, well, maybe your mind is already kind of doing the mental gymnastics of this, saying, well, look, if, if, if God's so certain about this, if, if he's sovereign, if history is heading to here, regardless, well, <clears throat> what does he need me for? I'll just kind of sit back and get out of God's way. Let him get on with that work. We don't have the option of saying that. William Carey, uh, he was a Baptist minister back in the late 1700s in England. Uh, he was a man with a burning desire to see the gospel taken to the nations. And he was at a meeting one day with other Baptist leaders and he was arguing with them for the value of overseas mission. And when he had finished making his case, this older Baptist minister stood up and he said, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen world, he will do it without your help or mine. I mean, the arrogance of such a statement. But Kerry wasn't deterred. He didn't sit down. He didn't slow down because he understood that we, ordinary Christians, are God's chosen instrument for reaching the lost. William Kerry went on to help found the Baptist Missionary Society, and he himself was a pioneer missionary in India. Friends, you and I can't just sit back and, and let God drive history towards its inevitable end. We haven't been given that option. We are commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations. And that sounds daunting, doesn't it? Perhaps you feel daunted uh, hearing the challenge of this. <laughs> but just think of how daunting this must have sounded to the first disciples that Jesus commissioned. I mean, you can't be serious, Jesus. <laughs> You want us to go to the ends of the earth? How, how can we possibly do that? There's too few of us. The task is too big. We're too weak. I mean, you could excuse the first disciples for thinking that reaching the nations was beyond them. But us? Well, we've got 2,000 years of proof that God is going to do this work through people like us. 
In fact, if you're a Christian, then you are proof of God's commitment to this eternal plan because whoever it was that shared the gospel with you and taught you to put your faith in Jesus, well, someone shared the gospel with them and then someone shared the gospel with them before that and so on and so on, all the way back to the first followers of Jesus. Do you know that the baton of the gospel has been passed on for 2,000 years and it is in your hands right now? What are you going to do with it? I was reading this week that for the Tokyo Olympics to happen, there had to be around 80,000 unpaid volunteers giving their time and their energy towards it. And I wondered, what makes 80,000 people invest themselves in seeing this vision come to fruition? Well, surely it's because on some level, each one of them believes in the worthiness of that task, right? Friends, the creator of the universe has a vision to gather billions of people from every nation, tribe, and language, and to purify them in the blood of his son, and to fill them with joy for eternity. What a plan that is. Don't you want to be involved in something so grand, so consequential, so glorious? Let me pray. Father, we thank you for revealing your will to us. Thank you for showing us what eternity will be like. It comforts us today, Father, to know that you have got this in hand. And yet, Lord, we also know the challenge that you are choosing to involve us in seeing this day come to fruition, of having men and women and children calling on the name of the Lord Jesus from amongst every nation on earth. Lord, forgive us for our apathy in this task and fill us with a passion to see your vision realised. Lord, we need your Spirit's help to be bold and courageous when we feel so weak and so not up to the task. And yet you have proved your faithfulness that you used people just like us to bring us the gospel. So help us to go on bringing the gospel to others. We ask for Jesus' glory. Amen.